Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On today's show we have Herbert von Sonweg. He's the managing partner of Time to Grow Global. He's also the author of The Power of Professional Closeness. Before we get to speak Covert, it's a Leadership Hacker News. We reported on the show that folk were using toilet roll to increase the fun factor in the face of adversity. And that's no different this week. David Faulkner, who's a florist from Blossoms Events in Truman, Arkansas, has created none other than bouquets of loo roll to put a smile on the face of his customers. These arrangements are in response to the limited supply caused by the global pandemic at the moment. And David tells us each bouquet comes with a dozen deluxe toilet rolls, fully customizable. David told GMA, we just want to lighten the mood. Well, I say, good on you, David. In other news, researchers have shown that if we ask ourselves the six questions I'm about to share with you, it will improve our self-care. And self-care right now is incredibly important, not only to us, but to those that we lead. And here's the six questions. Number one, what am I grateful for today? Number two, who am I checking in on or connecting with today? Number three, what expectations of normal life am I letting go of today? Number four, am I getting fresh air today? Number five, how am I moving my body or exercising today? And number six, what contribution am I making to others today? Six great questions that will improve our self-care and as leaders, our resilience starts with us, engaging the body and the mind, and it's the first step in clarity for leaders and the first step to be the fittest leader we can be. This has been the Leadership Hacker News. If you have any other news or insights that you'd like to share with our guests and our listeners, contact us through our social media sites. I'm joined today by best-selling author of The Power of Professional Closeness, founding partner of Time to Grow Global, who's had assignments in over 50 countries already, so truly is an international leadership development coach, Kovac van Sampek. Welcome to the show, Robert. Nice to be here, Steve. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. So you started your journey not in a traditional business sense, but coming from a neurological background. So you started your journey, right, as a, as a junior psychologist. So tell us how you ended up from junior psychologist to international leadership development coach. Uh, okay, so I, I will go for the, let's say, the compact journey, and I can talk hours about this. Now, actually, uh, when I was uh, just from university, the market for you know psychologists or or, or, or these kind of uh, backgrounds was really limited. So basically, I found myself at the opportunity to have a job as a as a psych, as a junior psychologist with a firm that was doing some work for the judiciary system. And basically, the task was to to assess whether or not a suspected criminal was suffering of any kind of pathology. And and basically, that was my first first uh, job out of the university. 
And one of the things, actually, uh, when I get when I got into it, is that I found it was super super difficult to kind of maintain a a more distant position in trying to do a assessment based on objective data and facts, while all the time my gut was telling me something else. And kind of this started to uh, to become a little bit of a problem back then, where I found and I really kind of got the meaning of it much later in my career. But at that moment, I found, hey, there's so much going on emotionally with me when I do this work, uh, but I'm not able to use these emotions and to use these feelings about what I'm seeing, what I'm observing, et cetera, et cetera, uh, because I'm always being told, you know, you have to maintain your distance. And this was basically the mantra as well that we learned in, uh, in uh, uni. Created kind of a tension and a feeling where I thought, I'm not doing my job in the best possible way. And kind of that led me to uh, to think, okay, then probably this is not for me. Yeah, you know, I, I, I went on to a next job where essentially uh, I stepped into the, into the headhunters game, so to speak, um, where I could use my psychological knowledge. Uh, but I started to learn more about, let's say, a business context which was a huge step for me and uh, and also super interesting because as a, as a as a recruiter or a headhunter back then uh, you have to learn a lot about a certain uh, organization or a certain business in the shortest possible time so you get to know uh, a lot of different businesses and maybe on a pretty superficial level but still you get to see in a lot of different kitchens and and basically that got me hooked on uh, really hooked on uh, on let's say uh, yeah, the organizational life and organizational practice as, a, as an area to uh, to work in. There's a massive shift there, isn't there, between being in a kind of psychological role where you're faced with lots of emotions that you're having to suppress, conversely, then moving into a role where you're reliant on that gut feel and using that intuition and emotion. Can you recall yeah. a time where, where, where that really played out for you? Yeah, to be honest, I, I remember this, this very distinct uh, moment and I was sitting in this, I think it was an old nunnery converted into a, uh, you know, a place where they had young criminals, let's say between 18 and 22. And they were, it was not a prison, but it was somewhere in between, like a holding. Um, and I was interviewing, I was assessing this guy and he must have been three years or four years younger than I was at back, back at that moment. And the guy was suspected of pretty uh, heinous things involving kids. And for me, this was kind of a turning point. And, and I was really young to, to have, uh, uh, have kids myself. So I just had, had fathered my first daughter, well, first daughter, my daughter. But that moment for me, that, that really uh, is the example where, where I felt I am really not able to do my job uh, without properly listening to my emotions as well. And I felt at that moment, uh, this is not the place for me. Uh, so I have to do something. So basically it was a, a fleeing of a certain situation that, that kind of led me to start to look around me again. And then I ended up into the, into, uh, into the recruitment, uh, let's say practice, but I wasn't that aware at that moment, kind of the awareness about what was happening that came much later. Well, when was it you found you first relying on that kind of professional closeness that you've, you've come to create as almost your own now? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, so the emotions, of course, you, you know, really working with the emotions that came actually in the job right after, because, you know, you look at the people's resumes, you look at the, their background, 
you you talk to them and you know a lot about your client's context as well. And then there's only so far that you can really kind of tick boxes on, while a lot of it is also uh, relying actually on on all your senses in terms of, hey, will this person uh, be a right fit for this context? So then you need to start to sense and to listen to your emotions, which was completely different, I would say, uh, from before, where the mission was, you know, uh, use all the instruments and then maybe afterwards try to listen to your emotions as well. But the awareness, the real awareness about this, actually, that I think that started to, to develop pretty late, actually, after I started my own firm, uh, which was... Uh, probably five, six years later when I was 32. So in the meanwhile, I had progressed from this recruitment firm to a consultancy company uh, where I was leading the assessment center practice. Uh, And at some point they asked me, hey, do you want to become partner uh, with our firm? And that was for me the triggering moment to say, okay, if you guys think I can become a partner in this firm, maybe it's time for me to consider to become partner of my own firm. I'm 32. Uh, so I'm young enough. If it, if it all blows up within a year, uh, I'll have a huge experience to learn from. And then I can just pick up where I left off and I will find a job. But basically that never happened. And now we are, uh, I think, what is it? Uh, 18 years almost uh, down the line. And I am uh, still super happy uh, with, uh, with that start uh, back then when I was uh, 32. And super busy, of course. If folk were listening around the whole concept of professional closeness, how would you describe that to somebody who'd never really experienced the whole philosophy of professional closeness before? So for me, professional closeness, first of all, it is a sort of a concept, but it's also uh, really a lot like a mindset. The, the concept or the mindset itself, in terms of what it really is, is for me still maturing. But what I, what I think uh, helps is uh, by looking at the opposite, first of all. And this is a well-described concept, which is called professional distance. You know, doctors, uh, lawyers, a lot of people in professional roles, they, uh, they get this mantra of you need to stay objective, meaning don't let, you, uh, let your emotions uh, get the best of you, don't get drawn in. Uh, don't feel basically. I mean, to a certain extent, I can completely understand this. But my 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 learning of these last twenty years is is that your emotions, uh, what you feel, is not only making you able to connect better to the people around you and that you work with, but it also serves as a let's say a prehistoric radar for things that might be happening all around you, but you're not yet. Uh, 100% aware. So listening to these emotions and using them and leveraging them in order for uh, creating better workplace relationships, having a better sense of what is happening in your context, yeah, for me has become, uh, let's say, what I described the power of professional closeness. And as a leader, this starts with, let's say, really, really daring to start to listen to those emotions, but also start to show those emotions and opening up to the people that is closest around you. I love the whole principle of prehistoric radar because we, we all have the same kind of brain that's evolved over the last 50,000 years. Some parts have evolved a little more than others, right? But we all have this exactly. kind of tool yeah. to use, yeah. don't we? So yeah. how do you use the kind of psychology background to help you understand how different parts of the brain work and how the decision-making process is impacted by that with your clients? Yeah. I, I love the question. And to be honest, when, when I was studying psychology back 
let's say this is over 25 years ago. So back then, uh, when it came to neuroscience, neuroscience was much less evolved than it is right now. So we didn't we didn't have that much, let's say, factual background on how the brain works and how that translates into psychology uh, to behavior, and how psychology, which is you know the study of of studying the mind. Uh, but not necessarily from a biological perspective. So how that came together, I think, is only some something that that started to really evolve over the last last ten years. And to be honest, I started to read up on it a lot and started to become fascinated by the fact that now we start to understand our brain. Um, uh, a lot of those old school uh, and an old fashioned psychological concepts start to make sense. Some others, you know. Absolutely not anymore. But nowadays, the knowledge we have is at a level that we can also use it to monitor our own behaviors, to use it in the boardroom, to use it when leading. So I think, you know, uh, having this, uh, this background or having this knowledge, it's an obligation to spread that knowledge as well uh, from a leadership perspective. And, and, and when we, you know, are doing our type of work. In your experience, Hovet, of working with executives and leaders, how much value would you put on them understanding their own behaviors from a neurological perspective? Yeah, I, I talk about this in, my, uh, in the book quite a lot. And I think for me, it is, uh, it is a cornerstone that, that should be, uh, you know, if there would be a, a university or a school of leadership, like, like a proper MBA, something like that, then I think neuroscience and what it means would be one of the cornerstones. because really understanding trigger points, the unconscious behaviors, the defensiveness, how the different parts of the brain work together uh, and how this translates into your own behavior. I think that's an invaluable insight and for everybody useful, to be honest. I think it's, it's, it's one of the most valuable lessons that you can learn. And it helps, of course, also to understand what, what is it that I can actually try to uh, steer and to control. And what is it that I need to kind of monitor and to react to? If I was a leader of a team or a line manager, and I was really struggling to create that professional closeness, the, you know, getting that connectivity and understanding my team at a much deeper level, what strategies would you share with me that might be helpful to make that happen? Well, first of all, it is, I think the, the, the first thing is the acknowledgement of saying, okay, if you are leading a team, there's always, uh, let, let's say as a manager, you always have a responsibility or a, a mission or an assignment or a task. What I always think is the first thing is understand that your task, your mission or your assignment is not actually the mission itself, but it is making sure you create a team that is able to perform or deliver that mission. That is the first task. Uh, so it is all about human interactions. And it's all about having everybody be at their best, also working together towards that same mission. So for you as a manager, your first responsibility should be looking at the people instead of looking at what is my mission. That is the first awareness I think you need to have before you can even start to think about uh, developing anything that comes close to professional closeness. So second of all, I think once you have this awareness, uh, yeah, you need to start to, to be able to understand your own behavior, triggers or peculiarities in terms of your, your reactions. And, and once you understand that, I think the third thing is show the people around you who you really are. So kind of take off your office face or your mask 
and show the people around you who you really are. Because once they start to see, you know, you as a human being, uh, instead of as a manager with an assignment and a role and a status, then you have the, the right starting point in place. And then afterwards, I think there's a lot of different things that you might be able to do. Uh, but that, that depends also on uh, on the context. So there's tons of strategies and tips. So it comes down to daring to be you in front of your team. And I guess that also creates, the, the more you give of yourself, the more people are likely to reciprocate, aren't they? Yeah, and that's, and that's I think, the, 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 the most important thing is, is it is really leading by example, you know, creating these conversations that have a certain depth and openness, which for me doesn't mean that you have to always be sharing your deeper secrets, but it, you have to be willing uh, to share your real doubts about the things that you're doing and experiencing. And, and that can be about the professional context. But, you know, once you're in that place where you can really say, hey, you know, we are coming across this challenge and and I've never done it. So I, I'm really unsure on how to attack this. So I need the help of all you guys. You know, once you are really, really kind of letting go of this idiotic idea that as a manager, you need to know everything. Uh, and you need to have all the answers and you can start to work from that place, I think you already have made a big shift. That sounds great. Thank you, Hobart. And in me kind of getting to know a little bit more about you over the, the past few weeks and months, it's fair to say you've done quite a lot of research around that whole kind of getting smart people together. It's, it's often referred to as collective intelligence. And you did some research that says really just getting smart people together is just not enough. What would be the reason for that? Yeah, this was something uh, it kind of struck me while while I was doing the research on the book. And I was thinking, of course, you know, uh, you know, what is the point of professional closeness in a business context? It is about creating a better atmosphere and also about creating better results for the company, right? So I started to look into this concept of collective intelligence. And basically it says, first of all, if you have a bunch of really, really highly intelligent individuals and you put them into a room and they start to work together, this is not guaranteeing that you will have the most collectively intelligent team. And a collectively intelligent team is a team that is able to respond and react and, and let's say, uh, be in front of all the challenges that they are uh, facing. Uh, so it is, it is really the flexibility and the adaptiveness of the team to be functioning on a high-performing level all the time, no matter the con. And what I found out, actually, is that there's three indicators being uh, described as well in uh, in a book by uh, Thomas Malone, which is called Superminds. Um, number one, it's, it's social perceptiveness. Basically, social perceptiveness says the ability of the members of the team or the members of the group to read the emotions of others that are in that team. So being aware of the emotions of others in the team while you're working and while you're working together which is the first indicator. Uh, so if that's not there, or if that's, let's say, not there enough, you will never be able to tap into all those highly intelligent people because it will be still a, a fragmented bunch of very smart people together. Uh, so the second part is the degree of equality in participation, uh, which basically comes down to if you have one or two people hogging the conversation all the time, this means that uh, all the time other people are basically not contributing to the conversation and not letting their brains work at the same problem as well. That was number two. And then number three is 
I think is the most interesting one. And also uh, uh, from the perspective that we've just had the, uh, the International Women's Day, it is actually the number of women in a group. So it has been shown that the higher the number of women in a group, the higher its collective intelligence. And to be honest, it's a bit of a combination of the, the first two factors, because women a little bit more than men are uh, generally more socially perceptive. And they are also less likely to hog a conversation because they normally are already a little bit more about uh, having everybody participate. So I think it's very interesting if you look to these three points uh, and you look, for instance, at your management team or your board, what is it that you see? How are we doing on those three indicators? Do we really see what is going on? on the faces of others? Do we monitor and do we see their emotions? Are we making sure that everybody uh, has an equal say and that everybody is contributing? And in the end, are there women in the team? And of course, this is just the basic prerequisites, but it's a very, very strong starting point. It's really interesting, actually, because in my experience of having led board facilitation exercises and activities and, and coached executive teams, where I see more diverse boards, i.e., you know, diverse in uh, sexual orientation, in uh, gender, and in thinking, actually, the less groupthink yeah. you also get, right? Yeah, the less groupthink, the more you need to really join forces and look at the situation at hand and trying to solve it in the optimal way, the best possible way, given the circumstances, uh, which is something else than letting your egos prevail. And I think yeah, diversity in any sense uh, will help a lot. But then again, diversity only is not enough. You have to also be willing as a leader to see, okay, are we using that diversity? You know, if it's only, uh, if it's still, you know, the most diverse group, but it's only a couple of people who's doing the talking all the time, then you're still stuck in a, uh, in not using everybody to their best. You're right. And I think it's incumbent on us all as leaders, however large or small our team is, is to just be aware and notice whether or not we have got full participation and, and unlocking that opportunity to have broader, deeper, conversations. So, Hovert, at this point of the show, we're going to ask our guests to share some of their top leadership hacks. So what would be your top leadership hacks you could share with our listeners? That's actually great timing for the question, because the, the first one connects back to what we've been talking about just now. If you are a leader, a team leader, or, or, a, or the CEO, it doesn't really matter, and you are leading your meeting or your, your biweekly meeting, and you're looking at the team and you're thinking uh, somewhere in the back of your mind is this uh, voice that is saying, hey, what a passive bunch. Once you hear this thought, you should be aware that probably you are doing too much talking. I've seen this over and over uh, again. Uh, so if you hear this, what a passive bunch in your, in your mind, you need to sit down, zip it, and really create space for others to start participating. That is, that is for sure my first hack. What will be your next hack? Yeah, the next one, I would say it is actually connected to, um, to daring to listen to your gut feeling in a very literal sense. So let's say you're doing something and suddenly you start to get this turning feeling in your stomach and it makes you feel really, really uncomfortable. And your primary impulsive reaction would be, I want to get rid of this discomfort. The heck, I would say, if you start to feel something like this, train yourself to endure this discomfort 
and to use this discomfort as an indicator of, hey, what is happening? It might be something new. So actually, it's super good because we want to innovate. So we're entering into a space that triggers me to become uncomfortable. But this is great because it really is an indicator that we are doing something new. But it can also be an indicator of that you are experiencing something that you don't want to do but still might be the best thing to do for the company or for the given situation. So I think always listen to your gut feeling and to endure it instead of to you know, get rid of it right away. And I did some research when I concluded my book, actually, and, and research suggests that your gut feel is about four out of five times right because it scans those unconscious thoughts and memories that we all kind of had for many, many yeah. years, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. We ask our guests to think about hacks that they have learned from times in the past where things haven't worked out so well, perhaps where they screwed up or they've been disadvantaged. Have you got anything that you could share with our listeners, which would be your hack to attack? Yeah. So the hack to attack for me is basically be always prepared for the worst and be prepared emotionally. Uh, the first time that I that I kind of really really experienced this in a in a bad way, the company was a couple of years old, and then we had been working internationally on a on a huge assignment, and we had like I think two and a half or three hundred thousand euros, uh, which was in the pipeline of being paid. And at some point, the company uh, said we have compliance issues and we need to stop every single payment until we have figured it out. Or if something is wrong, uh, you can forget about the money. This situation was uh, uh, was creating, a really kind of stopped. But what I learned from it is really to prepare yourself when something like that happens, that actually you cannot really anticipate. Make sure that you train yourself to not be blown out of the water emotionally. Because you're, if you train yourself, to be prepared emotionally and that you can handle, hey, uh, yes, this is bad, but this means that I need to start acting in a different way. And instead of allowing myself to uh, sit in this negative emotion of feeling a victim to the situation, that is for me one of the biggest, the biggest things. And whether you are a leader, a entrepreneur or whatever, uh, make sure you're always prepared emotionally for the worst. So it sounds academically dead easy, doesn't it, to get prepared emotionally, but, but how physically can I do that? What would be the one or two things that would help me train to get myself prepared emotionally? Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great question. And it comes, comes back to one of my hacks, actually. It is basically once something small, let's say, surprising and not so nice happens, uh, and when you start to have this emotional reaction, really use those moments to feel what is happening inside of your body, to make a note of it mentally and, f and, and really you know, write it down. Uh, so what do I experience? What do I feel? Look at the context and see at that exact same moment what helps you to calm down or to mitigate that feeling. And if you do that quite a lot of times, in situations where the stakes are not so high, you basically train yourself to react in a certain way. And then when something happens, when the stakes are really high, you have a, I would say, a, a coping me mechanism already installed that will prepare you uh, for when that situation really happens. Got it. So it's about setting down some 
tactile foundations, really, that unconsciously you create over time. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Super. Last question for you today is if you were able to do a bit of time travel and go back to when you were 21 and bump into your 21-year-old self, what would be the one bit of advice that you would give Hovert then? This is very this is very much about my own journey. So what I would say to my 20-year-old self, I would say, hey, Govert, don't rush into responsibilities. Use the time that you have right now to learn about cultures, to learn about social skills, to look around you, to learn about the world, but don't rush into responsibilities trying to be, let's say, trying to live a, a, the, the, the adult life. Use this time right now when you actually don't have a lot of things to think about uh, when your backpack is re- relatively empty. It's great advice. Thank you, Hovet. Folk are probably listening to uh, you speak and we've mentioned your book, The Power of Professional Closeness. How can they find out a little bit more about the work that you are doing at the moment? Yeah, I would say uh, always good to take a look at uh, our website, which is uh, timetogrowglobal.com. And if you want to check out the book, uh, just hop on over to uh, to Amazon, The Power of Professional Closeness, Govert van Sandwijk, and it's uh, it's available. Read about it in the reviews and see if it's something for you. And, uh, and of course, I'll be uh, happy to help uh, if anybody wants to reach out directly. And we'll also put a link in our show notes to make sure that people that are listening to this can go straight away and click on uh, those links as well. Over. Thank you for spending some time with us today. It's been delightful talking with you. It was a, it was a great pleasure. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm really happy to be part of, uh, you know, your first five or 10 uh, uh, shows. And I'm be looking forward to, uh, to how the, the podcast will evolve over time. Thanks, Over. Thanks for joining us. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event or you would like to sponsor an episode please connect with us via our social media and you can do that by following and liking our pages on twitter and facebook our handle there is at leadership hacker instagram you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker and at youtube we're just leadership hacker so that's me signing off i'm steve rush and i've been the leadership hacker